Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are doing our last episode on Catching Fire before we move into our read-through of Mockingjay. Mm-hmm. So, in case you need a recap... Yeah, here's what happened in Catching Fire. Ew, President Snow. The saddest tour in the world. Rebellion is brewing. Will you be forced into marriage with me? District 13? Quarter Quell announcement. No! Sugar Cube? Yep, that's Seneca Crane hanging there. Look at that hand-holding! Cinna, no! Let the 75th Hunger Games begin. Tick-tock. Death and grieving. Lightning schemes. Things fall apart. Remember who the real enemy is. Pew! (laughs) Everything is revealed. Where's PETA? Scratch Haymitch's face off. Very clear recap. Yeah, yeah, you you get the points. Hitting on each of the points, yeah. So before we get into our first section, this is just a reminder that this episode is going to be filled with spoilers from both Mockingjay and Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So if you haven't read both of those books, you're going to want to skip this episode and come back to it once you have. Why don't we go into any of the new insights that we've gained as we've done this read-through and podcasted about every couple chapters or so. Sure, yeah. One of my insights was kind of seeing how the question of the book is, in a way, it's about whether to rebel, and if so, how. Mm. That's kind of what the book is dealing with, particularly when you consider it in comparison with the first and third book. It's weighing the decision to rebel against forces. And this is, you know, started when Snow meets Katniss at the beginning of the book, where he comes and visits and tries to get her not to rebel, to, to quell any kind of rebellion. And she's very bad at that. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually she makes the choice to rebel, regardless of his threats against her and her family. But even after she makes that choice, she spends a lot of the middle of the book trying to figure out what rebellion looks like. And what smart rebellion looks like when you are in a precarious position and when you have a lot to lose, especially because you have loved ones. And after the quarter quell announcement comes out, she basically decides that dying so that PETA can live is the best way for her to rebel, which she then doesn't follow through on. And that last moment where she shoots at the force field, she strikes back at the capital. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think for me, seeing this book as kind of a meditation on what rebellion means, what rebellion costs for Katniss, how her changing circumstances and new information that she has available to her changes her ideas of whether she should rebel or in what ways she should rebel. And yeah, that kind of just made me think about this book in a new light because I've always enjoyed this book quite a bit. It's probably my favorite of the series, but having a kind of more central thematic question makes me appreciate it even more. Mm, Totally, yeah. I also, of course, started thinking about these games in particular in ways that 
would be spoilers if we were talking about them as we were going, where knowing about the actual plan and that's going on and how that changes my interpretation of people's actions kind of continued throughout. Like, for example, when they're talking about the plan for the lightning strike, Johanna is really confused about why BD would need that wire. Actually, even before that, when they when they first meet up, she's like, he's been dragging that wire everywhere with him. And so that makes me wonder, yeah, is she not in on that part of the plan? Is she... Acting confused when she's not. Exactly. You know, like, what what does all of that mean? How much of that is pretending? How much of that is that different people have different amounts of information? Kind of goes back to that idea of Katniss as an unreliable narrator, which I discussed earlier in the book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if unreliable is exactly correct, but limited. Yeah. But for me, as unreliable, at least, or, or at, she had an incorrect understanding of the situation where she thought people were dying to protect PETA because PETA has particular skills that would be useful for the rebellion rather than thinking about herself as being in that role for them which yeah I just think is is interesting and follows along with you know I sort of had some questions about from both this book and the previous one about times where Katniss underestimates herself Mm, or doubts herself in ways that she shouldn't yeah yeah she doesn't know the effect she has on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing that, that hit me in a very new way in this read-through, though, was thinking about Cinna mm. and Cinna making that Mockingjay dress for her uh, out of her wedding dress and him clearly knowing the plan, especially as we know from the third book, and in a way setting her up to be a martyr. Because mm-hmm. he's painting an even larger target on her back by making her this symbol. Clearly, he's also comfortable doing that for himself, but he does it in a way that doesn't ask for her permission and is part of this grander idea of her becoming the Mockingjay, becoming the symbol that she's not entirely aware of. Uh, Although we do know in the next book, he made Plutarch and Hamish agree not to give her any of the outfits, any of the plans that he had done until she agreed to do it herself. Right. And and that's the thing is thinking about giving her this dress without asking for her permission in relation to that choice where he's so focused on her own agency in the third book po- posthumously. It's just, yeah, I think an interesting dynamic because Sina clearly cares for her quite a bit, but he also recognizes the importance of her as the symbol and is willing to increase the danger that she's in to help further along that plan. And yeah, again, it just, it makes me think a lot about the hard choices that these people are having to make as they are going along with a plan that not everyone is entirely aware of. And as they're constantly surveilled. Yeah. Which makes even these difficult decisions harder. Totally. You can't be like, hey, Katniss, do you want me to make your dress turn into a Mockingjay? (laughs) Not only that, but he also can't, in that conversation, be like, just to warn you, this is going to be a big deal for people who are trying to overthrow the Capitol. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, exactly. There there are limitations put on them that make it so that those those choices are even harder to navigate. Yeah. But what about you? What are your new insights? So one is 
that I know we have talked along the way about potential sexism that could be guiding some of Hamish's mm-hmm. actions. In, in the last book, we discussed possible explanations for his actions, and some of those would be motivated by sexist ideas and others would not be. But I think by the end of this book, seeing how he gaslighted Katniss, how he uses her like a pawn, how he belittles her at times, and we never really see him treat Peta in the same way. Yeah, there, there's certainly still some gaslighting there, but not. I don't even know if it's exactly gaslighting as much as just not telling him certain things. We've never seen a case where he goes to Hamish and is like, oh, I think this is happening. And then he convinces him that it's not, even though it is, you know. True. Um, that, yeah, that's true. The beginning of the book when they're in District 11, he does straight up tell Peta, you'll be fully informed from now on. And I remember as I was reading oh, this yeah. time, I was just like, <laughs> LOL. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's, he does some of those things to Peta, but he does it much more so to Katniss. And mm-hmm. so I think seeing those different things and having those questions along the way has made me kind of conclude that yes, Hamish is sexist Mm -hmm. and that doesn't guide all of his actions and and thoughts and stuff, but it does, I think, influence some of them in ways that disproportionately not affect, because obviously Peter gets affected by all the actions as well, but um, I I think discriminates in Mm -hmm. certain ways and erodes trust as well uh that Katniss had placed in him at different points and I get why she scratches his face off at the end absolutely yeah and it it's tough because Hamish is still a very compelling character Mm -hmm. a fascinating character he really does help save Katniss save all of them in in several different ways but yeah, he, he has this side of him as well that is problematic. Absolutely, yeah. Another thing that I was really realizing more this read-through is how I kind of see Peta as following after Katniss mm. in this book versus last book because we see him volunteer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's it's different in some ways than how Katniss volunteered in book one, but it's also similar in some ways. He's volunteering because he cares about someone. I mean, technically, he cares about both Katniss and Hamish, but even more particularly, <laughs> Katniss. Yeah. And it's to try to help save her, and she volunteered to save her sister. Also, we see him being defiant and audacious in his private training session, yeah. which Katniss was in the first games. He knew about what she did, and and so I, I kind of see him following after her in that regard, just in his own way with his own skill set of painting room. And then him in the games comforting the woman from District 6 is similar to how... Katniss comforted Rue and Mm so yeah it was just interesting to see him following after her lead in this book in a lot of ways as he's exerting his own agency but I think is letting Katniss 
and her actions uh, be an example to him to spur him on. Absolutely, yeah. So why don't we go into our character spotlight? This is where we look at a particular character that in our read-through has maybe hit us differently or we just have more insights because we've paid more attention to them in this read-through. So who do you have to bring? I want to talk about Johanna Mason. <gasps> so do I. Oh. Ooh. What are we so, going to do? <laughs> just talk, talk a about lot about Johanna Mason. Mason. Yeah. I mean, there's also Madge, which I wasn't going to touch on as much because we've done that as we've gone along mm-hmm. but i've definitely at least in this read through paid more attention to madge than i had in all of my previous read throughs okay, well do you want to touch on madge and then maybe we can talk about johanna together oh no i mean just i appreciate madge as a character more i appreciate her agency more and the small ways that she was undermining the capital and the systems that she benefits from and also is oppressed by mm-hmm. um yeah i just i really appreciate her being in there as somebody who is more privileged than katniss is but is still under the oppression of the capital which we clearly see with her end of being bombed to death mm-hmm. yeah i don't know i just i like her yeah she's great and so sad to lose her i know but at least we got her in the books. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But yeah, why don't well, you start us off with Johanna Mason? Sure. So Johanna, I think, is is always been an entertaining character. Um, and the, the line that has always stuck with me is her talking about how she's already lost everyone. And thus mm. she feels more emboldened to be defiant against the capital, saying things that other tributes might not. But this read-through, I definitely found her more compelling because as we were reading, I was really taking stock of the fact that she was intentionally putting her own life at risk and and being willing to sacrifice her life for the rebellion and, as part of that, for Katniss and for Peeta. What that means for a character who comes off so abrasive and (laughs) aggressive and, and all these other kinds of things is just, I think, a, a really interesting read. And it made me, yeah, be more compelled by her throughout this book because of, yeah, that, that slower read-through and that ability to really make connections between what's going on and what, what is going on behind the scenes and everything else. Some of this is coming from what we learn in the third book when more characters are reflecting on these games. But we see how Finnick gains... Uh, a kind of admiration for Katniss and a respect for her, especially an understanding of her sincere feelings about Peeta. Mm-hmm. But Johanna doesn't really have that same kind of admiration for Katniss. I think that she gains a grudging respect in some ways, but she never seems to like Katniss. She... I don't even know if she appreciates yeah, Katniss. Exactly. <laughs> and I was even thinking about how in the third book, she takes Katniss's IV of painkillers and mm-hmm. things like that. And it's very much framed as part of, oh yeah, because you owe me. I think that makes her the only character who does explicitly agree with Katniss's perspective of people owing, of her <laughs> owing people. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, everyone else doesn't really, I think, not always see things that way. But here, Johanna is, is very much seeing that. So she has this much more practical mentality and in a way that kind of 
makes that choice to to sacrifice herself to put Katniss's survival as more important than her own even more compelling. Even though her and Finnick kind of start from a very similar place, if he starts gaining a more idealistic view of Katniss throughout the games that Johanna doesn't, and yet she does still maintain that willingness to ultimately be tortured and maybe killed, and she is tortured, that's, uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's I think, a really strong character point and something that makes her even more engaging and fascinating. Totally. I mean, she she sees it as the smartest thing to do, as mm-hmm. the right thing to do, the best thing to do to bring down a system that has taken so much from her. And so any decision that she makes to protect Katniss and Peeta is a decision she made a long time ago. And not to say that that's not what Finnick is doing, but I think Finnick does gain some affection for Katniss and Peeta and wouldn't want to see them die. Yeah, for Johanna, she sticks to her course of action no matter how she's feeling. Mm -hmm. And like in that, I think is so brave. You know that she's smart, you know that she's bold, you know that she's brazen, you know that she's funny, but this read-through, I was particularly thinking about her bravery and the fact that, yeah, after the wire was cut, she went into another clock wedge, mm. drawing the two careers that of anyone you would fear in the arena, it's them, besides obviously Kenneth. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And she must have known that there was a good possibility that she would either be killed by Brutus and Inobaria or she would be left to the capital after they blew up the force fields because she would be too far away for them to get her if she was even still alive. Yet she willingly took those actions. I mean, it's one thing to be willing to die, but it's another thing to be willing to be tortured by the capital. Yeah who she knows is so cruel and twisted and malevolent. Yeah, to take those actions for somebody that you don't even like. <laughs> you know, that's that's difficult and that's brave. And yeah, it's just, it's it's striking. Yeah. On that bravery point, I think that there's also something we said for someone who has lost everyone because she refused to stop being defiant which meant that she continued to risk even though she had things to lose when she had them to lose. Mm. She, you know, that in of itself takes so much bravery. It's a bravery that Katniss doesn't always show. Yeah. And it did cost her. That makes me, yeah, have even more questions about what those experiences were like for her and how they have shaped her into the Johanna that we meet. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, and there was was one line as I was reading this time, I was just like, oh no. When she says, I want to put a lot of distance between me and that water before the lightning hits. Mm. And then we know in Mockingjay that one of the ways that she was tortured was using water and electrocution. And I'm just like, oh, this line. Because it's like, 
she wants to avoid this situation yet then because of the circumstances she has to put herself right into that situation to save Katniss Mm. Um, it's just like ugh yeah that's a great connection I did not pick that up but that's yeah Oh, Johanna. Oh, Johanna. Uh, Why is that gap at all that word? (laughs) A song that we will be singing multiple times in our next read-through. Oh, certainly. (laughs) But yeah, why don't we move into our next section, which is narrative threads. These are plot points, thematic things in the narrative that we see in this book and also connecting to the other books in this world of Penem. Yeah, so I think my main one was looking at how characters keep knowledge from Katniss mm-hmm. because that is something that happens so much in not only this book but all of the Hunger Games books and how, as you mentioned, Hamish is gaslighting her but the other members of the plan are also doing these actions that aren't clear to her that haven't been explained to her um, for many reasons and part of me was thinking to what extent i find that narratively satisfying Mm. because we have this huge twist at the end and you know are there enough breadcrumbs that make that a satisfying twist when I was first reading the book, in particular, and seeing Hamish and Hamish's gaslighting, I was trying to see if they drop enough breadcrumbs in his actions to make that satisfying. And if that was what my focus was, I'd say no, because Hamish does actually toe the line to his secrets very well throughout mm-hmm. the book, which I think makes a lot of sense for the character, even if it isn't necessarily narratively helpful to have no clues as to this major part of the mystery given to the reader. The clues that are given are, of course, given through other characters, in particular the other tributes in the games who Mm -hmm. sacrifice themselves or who do other kinds of actions to try to save Peeta and Katniss's life. And, you know, why that's the case is always explicitly kind of engaged with by Katniss. You know, she wonders why this is happening. So yeah, there's kind of this meta level of how narratively satisfying I think that these these kind of mysteries are but then there's this other level of how the reason that these are mysteries is because Katniss is having information kept from her in this case it's by her allies in the third book coin keeps quite a bit of information from her as well and much of her journey and much of the the revelations of these books is based off of her doing all that she can with what she knows and what she has and then having to make a new choice when she has a limited amount of information and doing the best that she can in those places. The berries, the arrow in this book, the arrow in the third book, you know, all of these. (laughs) So yeah, I just, I thought that was a kind of interesting thread that connects them. And in particular, thinking about this in comparison to the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, where Snow certainly has some things that are kept from him, but more than anything, he's the one keeping things from people. (laughs) <laughs> he never tells Lucy Gray all the things that he's thinking or the, the things that, that he's contemplating. He certainly is not completely honest with Sejanus. <laughs> what? <laughs> and so all sorts of people use information or, or withhold information from Katniss to manipulate her. Seeing someone who does that in Bout of Songbirds and Snakes, I think, is even more engaging because it's a tactic 
that we've seen being used on our protagonists, and now we see how it's used by someone who is an antagonist. That is really interesting. I, I, I wasn't thinking of that at all. Uh, but yeah, that would be a very interesting character study. Not that Hamish is like Snow at all, mm-hmm. but to see the ways in which they are similar uh, would be really interesting the next time I read uh, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely going to pay more attention to that and, and think about uh, an 18-year-old Hamish uh, and what he would have been like. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And seeing him as a mentor mm-hmm. and how, how their mentor tactics, you know, may overlap. Yeah. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. I mean, and obviously Hamish is an oppressed person in these, this scenario, right. which would affect things. But um, yeah, there there might still be some personality underlying the, the different ways that they do things because of the different circumstances they've grown up in. Yeah, and their shared, at least, experience with desperation. Yeah, totally. Well, and the fact that I think that Hamish really does care about certain people not a lot of people right but certain people and i don't think that snow actually cares about anybody really besides yeah. himself like he has some amount of care for tigress until he doesn't you know mm-hmm. but like at the end of the day he is always the most important person yeah. in any room any dimension <laughs> any everything and he's willing to sacrifice anyone else for his own survival or power, which obviously Hamish is not. Yeah, but at the same time, I think Hamish is willing to sacrifice people for the rebellion. Exactly. Uh, which I guess that could be a question. Like, I think that Corlana Snow definitely has some psychopathic traits that I don't think that Hamish has. But if we're looking just at the motivation for the greater good of what needs to happen for the nation of Penem, then yeah, both of them are willing to sacrifice people yeah. for that. Which Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, now this is a new insight for me. <laughs> Look at we're just a loop. Keep giving insights <laughs> to each other. <laughs> what about you? What narrative threads were you pulling on? So I was thinking a lot about agency. I mean, it's seen throughout the series for sure, but in this book, I think there there are just so many great moments that really show people harnessing agency in circumstances where part of the point is to restrict people's agency. Mm. Obviously, a great example of this would be in the private training session amongst the weapons and equipment that is there to demonstrate their skills. Mm-hmm. PETA manages to shame all of the game makers and create this political art. And Katniss manages to hang Seneca Crane and be like, you're not safe either. And so it's its like, own kind of political art. Yeah. <laughs> she did that finger painting. <laughs> and it's just like, this whole scenario is set up in such a way for a specific purpose, yet in those moments, they break out of those boundaries. Yeah. And clearly the most epic moment of the games when 
Katniss is stuck in the arena and there's two different tributes coming towards her, she finds a way to attack only the capital, mm-hmm. which is, again, like, she destroys the entire arena. She attacks the only person who wasn't a player there. Yeah. And she finds a way, even at the end of the book, when she thinks that she's in the capital's control, she even finds a syringe as a way to kill Peta and herself and maybe Beatty, you know, to undermine the capital. So no matter what situation she's in, she finds a way to like harness agency in whatever scenario she's in that is literally about to restrict it. Mm-hmm. And we see her doing those specific actions, but we also have the wider narrative that you know is happening that there are all of these people in the districts rebelling, doing their own uprisings. And that's also within all of the parameters the capital sets up to restrict their actions, their choices, the resources that they have to do anything to fight back. Yeah. And so I think that as we we kind of talked about a little bit before you brought up the point of the first two sections of catching fire are not in the games mm-hmm. and it it going away from what the first book was which predominantly were in the games and i think the ending of this book really does just that because she stops the games she does not give the capital of victor she breaks their games so i just i think it's a great way to see that suzanne collins is also decentralizing the games from what the story is about um as katniss does that Mm -hmm. and thinking about katniss and agency which she can always find no matter what circumstances i am very interested to look into mockingjay as she has been treated like a pawn so much and to kind of track where that's going and how constantly people are trying to use her even the quote-unquote good people, right, mm-hmm. are still doing this to her, and she finds another way. So thinking so much about agency in this book, I was also thinking a bit about songbirds and snakes as well, and how I think Sejanus does this a lot. Yeah, not as successfully. But... Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Um, because... He's taken away from his home. He's forced to be in this situation he doesn't want to be in and finds a way to give food to the tributes, finds a way to protest what the capital is doing. He, he finds a way into the arena mm-hmm. as a political protest. And even once he's punished for that, he's sent into the peacekeeping force in this militarized setting, he still finds a way to try to break out of that and help people, help the districts, and not be what the capital would try to make him be, you know? Mm. Unfortunately, to tragic ends. And, and even for him, too, 
another barrier, I think, to his own agency is the depression that he feels. Yet he still keeps seeking a different way to help people or do something better. Yeah. I love that you brought up Sejanus because from the moment you talked about how characters exert agency even in circumstances that are built to limit agency, Mm -hmm. I started thinking about Darius Mm. and how he is, as a peacekeeper, one of the things that tries to limit agency. Totally. But he himself exerts some also to tragic ends Mm -hmm. uh, when he sees the excesses of the new head peacekeeper. So, yeah, I think that there's some intense parallels there between him and Sejanus of someone who is part of these structures that are oppressive, who also have their own interesting relationship with agency. Mm, Totally, yeah. Yeah, and I also find it interesting, too, that in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Lucy Gray isn't punished for her agency, but Snow is, Hmm. because he's sent to be a peacekeeper. I mean, it's like a little learning trip for him, but he doesn't know that, right? But her cheating in the arena, whatever. Then by the time we get to Haymitch at least, but I'm sure earlier than that, then the agency of tributes matters to Snow in a way that it didn't matter to Dr. Gall. Mm-hmm. Which I just find interesting, and I don't know if part of it is that she just sees the people in the districts as so below her mm-hmm. in a way that it doesn't matter what they do or that she is so confident in the superior technology of the capital that she's just not that concerned, or maybe a difference is that the game's weren't as watched and and things like that who knows that they were even broadcast into the districts at all yeah uh so maybe reach has something to do with it but yeah it is something that i do kind of wonder about yeah i can also see it just being snow having this kind of deep-seated insecurity when he doesn't have total control and Mm -hmm. so he unlike dr gall cares more about having to constantly maintain the vision of total control that any even perceived slight to it becomes much more of a big deal than someone who doesn't share that same kind of insecurity yeah that's true and also in his own narrative Mm -hmm. he thinks like oh i was affected by lucy gray she made me weaker and so totally dr gall's not affected by (laughs) anyone in the districts yeah she doesn't care and so yeah maybe and well and also maybe he has to liken himself more to these tributes because when he was stuck in the arena he felt what it felt like to almost be killed and to lash out violently and so maybe he feels the the potential humanness of that more than dr gall thinks about Mm. it Interesting questions. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting that I noticed this time is that in these games, Katniss only kills one person. Yeah. Gloss. 
compared to book one where she killed Glimmer and Marvel and Kato and the girl from District 4, I think that's just another example of like decentering the narrative around the games and centering it around the capital is the real enemy. So Catching Fire is where the narrative stops being about survival and it starts being about a struggle for change, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Thanks. <laughs> well, why don't we move into our compelling questions? What do you have for me? I was wondering if you see any of the scenes at the lake and the cabin differently after reading the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Yeah, it annoys me. I'm just like, go away, Snow. <laughs> like, did he put surveillance up there? I-, I feel like he probably had to have. Why would he not? He knows it exists. Mm-hmm. And so then I, when I was reading it, I definitely felt like they were being watched more mm. in a way that I was like, stop, gross. I don't want your gross eyes and blood breath here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because I almost saw it the opposite way where mm-hmm. I was like having seen kind of the failure of Snow's rebelliousness in Ballad Songbird Snakes at that cabin where he considers running away and he considers this other life outside of the capital and then violently goes the opposite way. Katniss interactions with Gale and interactions with Bonnie and Twill, if not being, you know, a successful rebel yet, she is having productive defiance she is maintaining that and maintaining it in sincere way and again trying to navigate through that in a way that is just kind of narratively more satisfying for me having seen the failure of it with snow (laughs) the fact that the even reason he was there was because he was running from his own bad actions exactly he killed someone didn't want to face the consequences of it Mm mm-hmm such a little coward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So these things are happening at the same location. And even that... as he was like walking there, he's like thinking about how bored he's going to be. <laughs> exactly. <He's... laughs> There's no room for leadership in the wilderness. <laughs> by, by placing these in the same location, we get even more of an explicit contrast between hmm. their those experiences. Totally. What is your question for me? So I'm wondering what you think about Snow and the Capitol's actions in this book. Was having the quarter quell a good or foolish idea? I think it's very foolish, in particular having it with past victors. I think that mm-hmm. doing so symbolically empowered those victors. It gave them new opportunities new avenues for resistance and defiance that were more public, that were seen seen in a more positive light by the capital, uh, as well as by the folks around the world who had to, to watch this. One of the things that is a greatest hindrance to this resistance is their ability to communicate with one another. They mm-hmm. don't have access to these massive networks because there is constant surveillance and control over movement and things like that. But by highlighting these defiant gestures that the tributes are making, 
he is providing them with a ability to share messages that they wouldn't otherwise have the ability to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's ensuring that people are paying attention to these games in a way that they never have before. Not that mm-hmm. they weren't paying attention, but you can bet that most people in the capital aren't going to be completely drunk or high or whatever and not paying attention to the interviews that are happening because they think that this might be the last thing you ever hear from this victor that you've, you know, you care about or you've been invested in for all of this time. And so then when they turn around and say something rebellious, then... That's a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) People are paying attention more. As well as, yeah, it was providing an opportunity for people from other districts, even within the arena itself, to work together in a way. People have never worked together that much from all of these varying districts. Sure, you always have the career pack or whenever that formed, but that's become commonplace now mm-hmm. and so there's nothing symbolic about it there's nothing surprising about it there's nothing powerful about it but when you have someone from district 3 and district 4 and district 12 and district 7 all working together that means something different yeah and if the message is that the capital is more powerful than even the most powerful districts these games aren't really showing that because mm-hmm. it's still, for one, having them, at least ostensibly, supposed to be killing each other. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't show capital control over them. It yeah. shows how these people have built their own agency. They've built their own soft and hard power in the years since they have won the games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think that that's... Uh, So yeah, I I think that that was very much a misplay, a fatal misplay on Snow's part. Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, why would you ever think it's a good idea to put Katniss back in the arena? (laughs) Look what she did last time. (laughs) And secondly, he got some of the capital citizens to outwardly, publicly rebel against him. Yeah. You have to do a lot for that to happen because all of these people have been just okay with it for all of these decades or some of them have been working underground to try to stop this. But now you're getting the people who are fans of this process seeing the injustice of it, which is... It just never would have happened if it was just a everything as per usual games that Katniss and Peta had to mentor in. Mm -hmm. Having a normal run-of-the-mill games would have taken some of the fire out, I think, of what was going on. I mean, obviously they couldn't have had a run-of-the-mill since it was the quarter qual year. I mean, they could have, but they wouldn't. Yeah. But they could have done something that was less inflammatory as what they did. Yeah, you just... You gave all of these people a platform Mm -hmm. that you literally couldn't monitor in the ways that you've been able to in the past. 
because you have to show them on screen. Yeah. You can't cut everything that they're doing out. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it was foolish. I mean, I think it, him threatening Katniss at the beginning, I think that was strategic and mm-hmm. smart thing to do for his evil ends. But, yeah, having the quarter quell and then, like, cutting the interviews that feed off. Like, it just shows a weakness that totally. they didn't need to show. And, you know, considering your conversation about agency, I especially love the fact that he makes this misplay because of Katniss's choice at the end of The Hunger Games, mm-hmm. at the end of the first book, where he feels like he's in a desperate position, that he needs to exert force over the tributes over the victors over the 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 districts after Katniss's choices led to uprisings and showed a kind of defiance and started creating a symbol of defiance Mm -hmm. and so it's not just the second book is Katniss having to deal with the continued oppression by the villains it's Katniss is now dealing with new circumstances that are a response to her choices in the first book. Mm, yeah, I like that. And also juxtaposing them as well, because Snow is always like, oh, I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. Mm, yeah. He has all of the choices, and he consistently makes bad ones yeah. that put him in situations that make his own situation more precarious. Mm-hmm. And then Katniss has so few choices, yet pulls choices out of nowhere to put his system in a precarious situation, Yeah, which is just beautiful. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Ha ha ha, Snow. <laughs> I had another quick question just about why you think none of the other mentors were taken to District 13. You know, what about Finnick and Mag's mentors? What about Beatty and Wyrus's mentors? If they knew about the plan, which I'm sure some of them definitely did, mm-hmm. why were they not taken to 13? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think that part of it could be that they didn't want to make it so obvious. You know, already having Hamish and Plutarch leave is going to be more of a risk and in fact that they probably would have left Hamish behind as well if not for the fact that he was strategically important for Katniss. I could imagine that Plutarch would have left alone if not for the fact that he knew that Hamish would be a valuable asset in trying to control Katniss as the Mockingjay. I mean that's what they would think even though that's not actually true. Totally yeah but that's I think what's going on in their heads of, of you know, why they're making those decisions. Yeah. I was also wondering if it could be that they wanted a lot of victors to go back to their own districts Mm. to help lead revolts there, but there's no district for Hamish to go back to. That makes sense, yeah. Because we know at least Lime in District 2 is working against the capital. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many of these other victors are as well. And so, yeah, because they have been forced into this public image for so long, they would probably be an easier rallying point, especially if they know that 
Finnick and Beattie and Johanna, you know, they were all in on this, then they have even more clout to, to go back and be like, some of them were taken by the capital. Others are in District 13. Like, we have to do our part, too. Yeah, that's a really good point. But it's really sad because they all die. Yeah. In going back to their districts, they ended up dying for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that is the end of book two of Catching Fire. <laughs> On that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> we are ending about the way the, the book does. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the end of the next book's going to be any better. It's true. I mean, so. it's it's a little better. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, and it's worse in other ways. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But yeah, that's that's going to do it for Catching Fire. So what are we as a podcast doing in the next couple weeks? So next week, we're taking a week off for our general listeners. But for our patrons, we are putting up our episode that is our kind of reaction to the Catching Fire movie uh, after reading this book. Very excited for that. Yep. And that is available to any different tier on our Patreon. So even $1 a month. You get that. Yeah. Sign up. Listen to those bonus episodes and maybe uh, see if you want to stick around. (laughs) Totally. Also, we have our Zoom meetup happening this weekend and uh, we just had trivia launch as well. So there's a lot of fun things to engage in for Catching Fire before we move on to Mockingjay. And then the week after, next week, we are going to be reading the first two chapters of Mockingjay and get into District 13. Yeah. It's no longer District 13. (laughs) All right. Well, that's exciting. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you will join us there soon. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Until then, geek geek out. out!